1: Inevitably, they are not the same as what is on the sheet of paper. So, I don't know which one to read. Um, This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please stand if you are able. Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, And all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by if you grow into salvation, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good, come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's light. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord.
0: Please be seated. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. That through your words for us this day, we would continue to learn, grow, and mature in our faith. That as we continue to see through the eyes of Christ, as we continue to be called to this living hope, that we would embody the hope that Christ offered to us and offer hope to the world. So, in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I think... Uh, Metaphorically, this is probably the most Peter passage that could ever have been written uh, in the Bible. And you may be wondering why. Well, many of you will remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Peter's name is actually Simon. And in Matthew 16, in in, uh, Jesus' last days, uh, Peter comes up to Simon and says, I am going to call you Peter because you are the rock. ...on which I will build this church. He called him Petros. And the word Petra is the Greek root for the word rock. And so it would stand to reason that Peter probably knows a few things about being a rock. Jesus clearly called him the rock on which he will build his church... ...because he knows the foundation not only that is offered through himself, that is Christ... ...but he also knows the foundation that can continue to be offered through the disciples... This is not a naming of Peter as better than the other disciples. It's not saying that Peter is above them in any way. It is merely naming Peter as part of the continuation of who Christ and who God created this world to be. And so we should not be surprised to see that when Peter is offered an opportunity to write a letter, that Peter writes about stones and Peter writes about Rocks or includes a metaphor for rocks in there, right? Jesus himself, the rock, the cornerstone of our faith and Peter and the rest of the disciples being the rocks on which the spiritual house of God, the church is built as well. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then the church gets built up from Christ and with each and every stone, the church becomes stronger. And it all starts with Jesus and continues through his disciples. Now, I mean, we can argue about, and many theologians have done so, about whether Peter actually wrote this letter. But to me, whether Peter wrote this letter or not, it still stands to reason that this rock, this foundation, this stone imagery is something that has stuck around in our church because it makes sense. Not because we need physical buildings. But because we need to understand the physicality of who we are. And especially as we look at these biblical times, we see this metaphor that is used not just in the Gospels, but all throughout Jewish mythology as well. The way in which God talks about the people of Israel. The way in which the people of Israel talk about God as being their rock and their refuge. It's no wonder that this carries over into our tradition as well. And so as we've been looking in this series, we've been unpacking the living hope, right? In, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, we read, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and goes on to talk about the importance of this living hope. And so we began by looking at the nature of joy that exists within that, right? As we were coming off the heels of of a great and wonderful celebration of Easter, of getting to the empty tomb and realizing that the tomb was not empty because someone had taken Jesus' body away, but the tomb was empty because Christ had risen. Then we look at the joy that fills our hearts at knowing the truth of the resurrection, From there, we continue to fill in these holes of what it means to be the church. And as we're now coming over the hump and coming down the hill as we move towards Pentecost, we begin to look and note what we are moving towards. Right? The disciples are entering this period of seclusion away from the world as Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And in those days of seclusion, they are encouraged. They are brought upon to contemplate, to reflect. On what ministry will look like. Going forward for them. Right Christ has given them. Language of community. Christ has given them language of grace. Christ has given them language of the spirit. Now as they await. The spirit to come into. To be a presence in their lives. They wrestle with. What it looks like to be the body. Of Christ. To be the people of God. To be the kingdom of heaven. To be. The church. And so how does Peter do this in this passage? Right. If we are to name that we are disciples. Then we look at what Peter is doing here in this letter. And we look at the way that Peter names and instills the importance of our role. Right. If the living hope of Christ. Is not a physical being whom we call Jesus. Jesus. But it is the way in which the Spirit of Christ exists and is embodied in each and every one of us. Then we think about the importance of what we do for the kingdom. And so when we take on that role as Christians, we become part of this great narrative, this great metaphor of the spiritual house of God. And so Peter writes, Come to him a living stone. Though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is Peter calling us to do? So what does Peter do here? Peter does two things here. Peter names Christ as the living stone, right? And we get into it, and we see it in a couple of verses later, that Christ is the cornerstone. Now, for those of you who are builders in this congregation, you'll know that the cornerstone is the first stone that is laid down, right? It's the first stone that is put in place when you are building a building. And oftentimes they will put a nice date on it so that, you know, the year or the date that the building was started. And so Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is our foundation of faith. It is the first stone that is laid, and from that stone the rest of the house is built. And so we, too... Like Christ is a living stone, are living stones as well. Why? Because we get built out from Christ. We rest our foundation on Christ, who is the cornerstone. Jesus being the cornerstone. Peter was named a stone, a rock. And we too. Peter is passing that name onto us. So that we know that we too are like living stones. We too are a living hope. Living into this idea, this faith. And so our faith does and rightfully should be balanced, be built upon the foundation of Christ. And as we look at this, Peter builds this foundation by talking in two different ways in this passage. And I'm going to start at the end because not that it's more important, but I think it lays the, that, that lays the foundation um, Peter often speaks backwards, a little bit like Yoda. And so Peter does this by talking about two things. He talks about being named and being claimed. And I'm going to start with claimed because that's where he goes to second. And you see, we've reflected on this manner of being claimed by Christ, right? Peter talks about it and he uses language that we've heard, not just in the Gospels, but that we hear all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And, and, and Peter talks about this, this holy nation, these, this royal priesthood, These special, or I like that word special because in in the Greek, it's actually peculiar. We're a peculiar people. Amen. Amen. (laughs) But we are chosen as God's people. And friends, I think that that is the important thing. Peter is using nation here to define a broad group of spiritual people. A holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of God is a nation, is a people of heart and spirit driven not by what we want, but by who God calls us to be. By the never-ending love of God that is instilled within each and every one of us. And how do we know this? How do we feel this? Because Peter also then goes on to talk about what it's like without God. or, Or often, like I often refer to it, our experiences away from God. Right. God does not forsake us. Oftentimes we forsake God. And so Peter reminds us of this grounding and says, once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And to take it to the extreme, once we were nothing, now we are something. Peter doesn't write that. But whenever I read this verse, I often think of that. Because when we think about our connection to God when we think about the way that God works in our lives, When we move ourselves away from God, when we build the barriers of our misdeeds and our misguided intentions, and we move ourselves further and further away from the image of God that was implanted within us in our creation, we begin to lose that way and nature of feeling claimed, of knowing that we are God's beloved children. And not just a feeling claimed and knowing, but living into that spirit as well. Right, God has found an imperfect stone and is now making it perfect, adding us to the great spiritual house that is being built. And so then if we know that we are claimed by God, then we must name now what this means for our faith. And so now we jump back to the beginning of this passage and we look and we see Peter write, rid yourselves, therefore... Of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation. So what does Peter do here? Right? Peter will name. And the reason that I started with claiming is because the claiming that Peter does in the second half of this verse is merely a reiteration of of ideals that Peter has mentioned before, right? We are a part of God's spiritual household. It's not a new message for us. And so when Peter goes and he talks about being claimed by God, he does so in the idea of trying to name and place a morality of how we are called to live as Christians. And so what is at the heart of this standard of moral living? Rid yourselves of all malice all guiles, insincerity, envy, and slander. And so Peter is talking about how we live out our faith. And in talking about this, we again see a theme that I mention all the time. We are presented with a manner of what this experience looks like. Not necessarily in who we are, But in how we relate to others. In how we are in relationship with the world around us. Right? Our faith is lived. We are called to be part of something greater than ourselves. We're called to grow past the trivialities of the world. To transcend beyond this infancy idea of what it means to be human. Right? And I love it. Peter's not the only one to use this infancy metaphor. We see it from Paul. We see it from James. We see it from John. We see it from many early biblical writers that are not found or reside within our biblical canon. This idea that we start in our faith as infants. But what is the first thing we do as infants? As Peter is telling us here, we taste that pure milk of the Lord. We get that first taste of who God is. And in that, we all start in that one place. And we look and we see throughout the Bible that we must grow from this place. right? We cannot always stay babies. As cute as they are. We have to grow up and be adults and pay taxes. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? But here's the thing, because we all have to start somewhere. And so where does it start with God? It starts with genuine Sincerity. It starts with genuine honesty. It starts with genuine love for God and for neighbor. Right? Look at what that list entails malice, guile, insincerity, envy, slander. These are all ways, thoughts, speeches, and actions of how we relate to other people over and over in faith. We are presented with morality, not as what we are, but instead how we behave, how we carry ourselves towards others across creation. And so too, do we see more often than not in scripture, we see the idea and understanding that love as God first loved us. And as God continues to love us, God's love is based on our being. It is the very fact that we are a part of creation And so when we hear that we are living stones, we emanate this this idea and this understanding that is within Christ himself. The way that Christ ministers is the way that we are called to minister. The reason that our spirit, that our understanding is found within Christ is because we have a biblical example of who our God is. We have a biblical personified example of who our God is. And as Peter is writing, as he is thinking about what his role is, As the rock on which the church of Christ, the church of God, is being built. He thinks about the way and nature that we interact with other people. And he's thinking about the way and nature that we offer the hope that was offered to us to the world. The love of Christ overcomes all of these differences that we have. All of these political differences. All of these ideological differences. Even sports differences, friends. (laughs) The hardest of differences to overcome. The Lord has called me to forgive any New York Yankees fan. Because I have one on my staff. (laughs) Friends, it is in that. That we see. That the love of Christ does not live by these standards of hatred of malice, of envy, of discontent, of judgment. But we see within this teaching, within this understanding that is taken from a disciple of Jesus, we see how Jesus is calling us to be a part of the solution in society, to be a part of the love, to be a part of the grace. To be rejected because of the love and grace of God Because we know that it can overcome those human feelings. We know that love is a powerful, powerful thing for us to embody. And we know to live in that sense invites us to be bigger than the trivialities of what is happening. To transcend them by setting a new nature within this world. Right? There is hope in Christ and therefore there is hope in us. And so we think about the way we are called to live into this hope. We think about the malice. We think about the guile. We think about the anger. We think about the envy, the insincerity, all of those things. And we think, what is God calling me to rid myself of so that I can better live like a living soul? Amen. Amen.